Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February 18th, 2014, and this is episode 1304 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, this is one that seems uh, like it's going to be very well received based on the feedback I got last week when I floated the idea. I'm going to talk today about using permaculture principles to analyze a business, and not a permaculture business. I don't know if it's a software business, or a social media business, or a used tire store. I don't care what it is, the principles are the same. And I know this topic may not seem survival-y, but I'll ask you this. How do you pay your bills? How do you put food on the table, by and large? How do you live day-to-day in life? And we talk here about being prepared to live a resilient life in the face of the most common disasters that we can all run into. And, and the most common disaster that most people run into, usually in some way, is connected to financial issues. And if it's not directly financial, it usually turns into a financial one. When we lose a loved one to sickness or illness or something like that, um, it generally becomes a financial hardship. The more we can do to shore up the financial aspects of our lives, then the better we'll be off in any situation, good or bad. And that's what real survivalism is about. You know, planning for the worst and, and hoping for the best. And, and instead of just planning for the worst and hoping for the best, planning for the worst, but designing a lifestyle based on acquiring the best for ourselves and our families. That's what I'm going to talk to you about today from a standpoint of analyzing businesses. And I have a few different thoughts on that before we get started. But before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. Um, if you want to learn how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you need to get the uh, DVD series entitled Growing Your Groceries from Marjorie Wildcraft. You can find that at BackyardFoodProduction.com. If you use the links on our website, you'll get a discount uh, compared to what the general public pays. And if you are a MSB member, you get an even bigger discount from them. So if you are an MSB member and you're going to buy from Backyard, make sure that you uh, log in first, look them up, and get that discount code. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of professional instructors are really awesome at making sure that they teach you how to, you know, complete what I call that triangle of gun operator efficiency. You gotta have a solid weapon. You gotta have good quality ammunition for it. And then the linchpin between those two things is actually you, the operator. Now you can buy a gun and you can buy ammo. And in a way, with Frank and schools like his, you can purchase the education that makes you a better operator. But when it comes down to it, that's really on you. You've got to learn. You've got to train. You've got to be prepared. And, and that has a lot to do with being able to defend yourself with a weapon or even just put meat on the table when it's necessary, not just when it's a sport. Those two things actually are a lot more related than people think, though one is far more serious than the other. Frank Sharp Jr. can help you become a competent operator of that weapon so that you can defend yourself in the worst of times. And they'll also teach you how to save lives. We're going to carry an implement around capable of causing death. We should have life-saving knowledge as well. You can learn all that and more at Fortress Defense Consultants. On that note, for your training, ammo's expensive, and I don't know if you've noticed, but usually people get upset if you like start, I don't know, opening up with your 1911 in your living room. But we might spend a lot of times in our living rooms and our offices and things like that. What if there was a way you could train 
with no ammunition, with no gunfire, but actually get real-time feedback of where your shots landed. Know when you've done something unsafe, know when you've done it right, know when you've done it wrong, and have something in your hand with the exact feel and weight of the actual weapon that you carry. You can do that with something called a CIRT, S-I-R-T. They're available from Next Level Training, and they are MSB discount vendor of the day. These are folks that are not an actual sponsor, but they actually do provide a discount for the MSB. Uh, you can check them out at nextleveltraining.com. And again, uh, MSB uh, members get a discount of 20.5% off all certs. That's a significant discount because they're a high-quality piece of equipment, and frankly, they're not cheap, and they're not made cheap either. There's something that can really take your training, well, to the next level. That's just one more reason to consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do join the Member Support Brigade, you'll be supporting the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And... Uh, You'll get access to videos that are available nowhere else. You get great discounts like the ones we just talked about today. And uh, again, you'll be supporting the show. And if so, you know, kind of my sales pitch on MSB is when you get done with the show, if you think that's worth uh, 20 cents, consider joining and, and then get your money back on the things you're probably buying anyway. Well, now I'm ready to get into the show. Before we get into uh, using permaculture to analyze a business, let's go ahead and uh, discuss what happened in the year of the episode. The episode is 1304, so the year is 1304. This history segment provided to you by Alex Shrugged, one of our leading contributors to TSPWiki.com, where you'll find uh, the notes on what I'm giving you here today, plus two other major events from the year 1304. The one that I've picked out of Alex's submissions this year is King Philip the Fair and the IRS scandal. Last year, King Philip the Fair of France, it's his real name, guys, King Philip the Fair of France, sent his minister to take Pope Boniface the Eighth prisoner. The king's minister accused the Pope of terrible religious crimes, vigorously tried him, quite vigorously, and then let him go. Pope Boniface dropped dead on the way home. Now, after eight months, Pope Benedict the Eleventh is dead. Suddenly, if you read into these events, you will suspect not only murder of two popes, but agents of the King of France, um, by agents of the King of France, but the subjugation of the papal office itself. Soon, Pope Clement V will move the papal palace to France and allow the king to seize the vast assets of the Knights Templar. That'll come though in the future. Uh, Alex's take on this is King Philip the Fair is a sincere guy, very brave, but not too smart. He is being run by his ministers, and the French bureaucracy is famous for destroying their adversaries by first telling a big lie, then using the legal system and regulations, so that by the time the issues are resolved, their adversaries are destroyed, even if they are found innocent. Sound familiar? Today, the IRS scandal is part and parcel of the bureaucracy designed to destroy the political enemies of the current government. They did this for President Nixon and his enemies list. They are doing it now for President Obama against the Tea Party. Anyone whose organization has the word patriot in the name, the more things change, the more they say the same. I think what actually I take out of this is a little bit different. It's, it's quite often that the people that are in charge are not really the ones making the decisions, and they're being used as useful idiots, and they're being used by their own cabinet in the case of a president. Often they're being used by the financial elites that put them into place in the first place. So it doesn't really matter who's using it, but you take somebody with the power of a congressman or a senator or a president or, dare I say it, even a Supreme Court justice. Thank you, sellout, uh, and you know who you are, uh, the sellout on the Supreme Court. And if you guys remember when I talked about that, you'll know who I'm talking about. Anyway, um, 
And then that power that they have is utilized. I, the, the guy that sticks in my craw the most for this is George Bush Jr. Um, it just seemed like he was a puppet of the people around him. And Bush is a guy that I don't know what happened to him. Now, you know me, I'm not really fond of any politician at all. Uh, I think both parties are the same with different marketing. But I have to say that the governor... George Bush Jr. that I knew in Texas is not the man that served as president of the United States. Governor George Bush was articulate. He was able to debate in an amazing manner. He had a command of facts. He was in debates without stumbling, without bumbling, without stuttering, with no notes, bullet-pointing issues. You can actually look up some of the old debate footage when he was running for governor And it's, it doesn't even look like the same person. And not to give the guy a pass, because I don't really give any of them a pass, but it almost seemed like through his entire presidency, somebody flipped a switch when he became president, and maybe even before he became president. Like, you're going to do this, and you're going to be president. Almost like there was some major hand up the guy's backside controlling everything that he did, And part of the reason that he looked so screwed up at times was because maybe he was being directed by a hidden hand. I think that's true of all politicians to a degree, but it just seems weird. And you really have to listen to George Bush uh, as governor of the state of Texas speak uh, before he ran for president at all. And then you really have to listen to him speak after it, and it'll kind of scare you. Um, somebody made a video about this. I'll see if I can find it and put it in today's show notes. The person clearly had an axe to grind. They basically said he had dementia, but it does make the point I'm making, and it is it is disheartening. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I want to talk about using permaculture principles today to analyze a business. And I know that this might not sound survival-y, but again, frankly, one of the biggest common disasters is actually some sort of personal financial failure. I mean, I want you to think about it this way. If you're in a two-income family, both of you work, how would you feel today if your spouse came home, sat you down and said, honey, we have to talk. This is serious. I lost my job. Oh, and they terminated me for cause, so I don't even get any unemployment now. Um, I don't agree with what they did, but it's pretty lock, stock, and barrel against me, and I can't get anything now and I don't know that I can find a job, and you guys look together and realize it's going to be very hard for that person to find a job, half the income or a significant portion of the income from your family is now gone. Now, some of you that have been listening to the show a while and have stacked functions in your life and built up capital and, and put systems in place would go, you know what, wouldn't be happy about it, but it's not a disaster. For a lot of you, especially that are new to this walk, you're like, oh, that would be a disaster. Now imagine if it was both of you. If you and your spouse lost their jobs on the same day, or if you have a sole breadwinner who lost their job, is that a disaster? And I want you to answer the question for yourself honestly, is that a disaster? And again, if the answer is no, it's not, well done. But my next question would be, well, how long do you have before it becomes one? And can you honestly answer that? And if it's like a year, then well done. But for most people, that would be a disaster. And one way or another, there's some financial vulnerability in most people's lives. And the more things that we can do to build up a, a greater value in our lives, the more resilient we are. 
This can be from an entrepreneur standpoint. If you're running your business, this show is totally for you. If you've ever thought about being a business consultant and you want an edge, this show is totally for you. Um, but let's say you're an employee. You're not an entrepreneurial-minded person. You're not even going to have a blog or anything like that. You're just going to keep doing your job. This shows for you, too, because if you utilize the principles, now I'm not suggesting you charge into the boardroom and start spouting all this stuff off, but if you utilize these principles and see the problems in your company and gently begin to make changes based on them with the way you act, it's very possible you'll become an integral part of your company and be highly valued and either move up or at least be the last guy they want to let go of. Because I'm going to change the way you think about business today, no matter what part you're into it. And again, I want you to understand that I am talking about permaculture day, which is we usually talk about how to put swales in the ground and growing trees and producing food without chemicals and all. And that's a huge part of what permaculture is. But permaculture is really a design science. I am not talking about building a permaculture business as in a consultancy on permaculture. I am not talking about building a permaculture business like a business that is a nursery that produces plants and sells them to the public that are highly resilient permaculture developed plant lines. No. It could be, but I'm not. And I'm not going to talk about that at all in this today to make sure there's no confusion. I'm telling you, if you have a company that makes software, if you have a company that's in social media, that sells used tires, that's a reseller, that builds guns, that builds skis, I don't care what it is. If you're a reseller of telecommunications technologies, if you're a provider of telecommunications technology, it does not matter. These There'll be certain tweaks to make it fit the analysis model, but it'll pretty much fit no matter what you're doing. Um, and I do want to say again, I think the right person that is a good consultant already could take this and form an edge with it and really build a huge consulting practice. And I'm not getting in anybody's way that wants to do it. I'll just say it that way. Um, though I do like being cited as the source of things, as most people that create them do. What I want to start out with, though, is something I'm only going to go so deep into because I have a whole series on it. It's the eight forms of capital in permaculture. And uh, this was actually developed by a guy named Ethan Rowland. And Ethan is a very interesting guy. He's done a lot of work with uh, apple guilds and spent a lot of time in Kazakhstan, where every apple tree comes from. And in all of this stuff, he decided he, that we need to, with permaculture itself, right? We needed to change the way we looked at things as far as what we value. So in permaculture, we value the land and we value the people, care of earth, care of people. And we value taking the production that comes from doing those things well and reinvesting it as the third ethic back into it. So as my company grows and develops, okay, and it produces what we call a profit, I take some of that profit and I distribute it amongst my employees and ownership, but I also take a significant portion of it and I reinvest it back into the company. And if I'm running an ethical company, I'm not harming anyone or anything. So it could actually be part of my marketing as a company. We care for our people and our customers and our suppliers. We have mutual respect for all people. And we are good stewards of our planet. We do not harm our ecosystems. And that doesn't mean that every single thing that a person does is based on solar energy. Because some solar things just are cars with longer tailpipes is a way to look at it. What it means is we're not doing things that are specifically harmful to the environment. 
If there's a particular chemical that always produces a waste product that has to be dealt with, and we can spend a little bit more money to use a chemical that's benign, that's what we're going to do. That type of thing. Again, this is not farming. This is not, you know, we meet, you know, organic standards or biodynamic standards. This is, are we hurt? Because you know what? Let me put it to you this way. When a business is doing something that's actually harmful to the environment or harmful to people, whether it's their employees, their suppliers, or their customers, they damn well know they're doing it. Let me just put it that way. Okay? You don't need to start analyzing. This is not the analyzation point. This is the cut and dry, straight up, are you an asshole question. Are you an asshole to your people? Are you an asshole to the people you buy from? Are you an asshole to the people you sell to? Or are you an asshole to your planet? And if the answer to any of those is yes, I probably can't help you with this approach. Because my entire approach to optimizing your business through this is based on the fact that those three things are important to you. The people that you interact with at all levels are important to you. You don't want to be a jerk to anybody. You will do it when you have to for the benefit of others. So when it's the when it, so it's a non-aggression principle. I'm not going to be a jerk to you, but if you're damaging my entire company and I need to put you down in some way or another so that you don't harm all these other people, well, you've chosen your own avenue. That's karma, all right. You know, and I'm not going to do things that blatantly are harmful to the planet, and I'm not going to take every single thing this business produces and extract it. And expect that it's going to be sustainable. And if a person can't get through that, find a new client. Or fix yourself if you're the client for yourself. All right. So with that in mind, then we look at these forms of capital. So if we're going to say that there's a profit in a business and there's a buildup of value in a business, we have to look at the capital. Now listen, when you look at capital from an accounting standpoint, it's not what I'm talking about today. There's a place where you compartmentalize, and when you're dealing with the IRS, for instance, and you, you present a balance sheet, what makes something capital versus an asset is really, really important to those guys, and you can get into trouble for basically calling something what it isn't and depreciating it as an expense. So this is not a CPA-level discussion today. Okay, What I'm talking about with capital is anything held within the business that has and increases in value, has value or increases in value. And my question for is it capital is, can I convert it to another form of capital? Can I can I switch it, right? So if I have social capital, which we'll talk about in a second, can I use that to raise financial capital? And the answer is I absolutely can. Or can I exchange it for another form of capital? Right. So if I can either use it to and leverage it to, to build another capital source, or if I can trade it. So if I have financial capital, I can purchase something like material capital with it, right? And as long as it does that, for the sake of what we're talking about today, it's business capital. It's value in the business. That's what I mean. So the forms of capital. One, intellectual capital. Intellectual capital is the knowledge in the business. Um, it's the knowledge asset. The vast majority of the global education system is, is today focused on impairing intellectual capital. You know, not necessarily they're doing a good job of it, but in our business we can look at intellectual capital in a variety of ways. The knowledge we possess, if we are in the business. 
the IPR or the intellectual property rights of the business. So if the business has created certain brands or certain systems functionality that are protected under an intellectual property, there's a, there's a capital source of the business there. The knowledge of your employees or your partners or your contractors or your suppliers um, and also the knowledge possessed by your customers. Um, this business that I run, Survival Podcast, is benefiting greatly not just from my knowledge and the knowledge of my sponsors who are like suppliers and the knowledge of the people who I've contracted with to do work for me and the knowledge of our guests and our members of our panels, but from the totality of the knowledge of the community. There's a significant value in intellectual capital on the TSP forum, which is almost 100% developed by you guys, not me. I put it in place, you built it. So there's a huge value of IPR in the Survival Podcast forum. I, I call it a PhD on prepping that's available for free. And that value, even though I don't sell it, you can't, you can't buy a forum. You can't buy a board on the forum. You, you can't buy your status on our forum. You can't, you know, it's, it all has to do with, you know, being a community member. But that value of my business is huge to you and to other members of this community who then partake in other things the business does because that exists. So it's capital. The next one is spiritual capital. And this is where people think when you say spiritual capital, you must be talking about religion. And, and not really. This is what type of karma the business creates in the marketplace. Every action you take that's felt by any other being creates a response. So if you're doing good things, you're generating good spiritual capital. If you're doing bad things, you're generating bad spiritual capital. You know, can the business live after the death of the owner? And if it wasn't for things like the IPR with TSP, the answer with my business, since it's one man, sort of, which we'll talk about later, is no. But with that, it can. Is the business being evangelized? You know, a hallmark of spirituality and religion is that people that partake in it go out and tell others. In Christianity, they call it the good news, right? So if you have a spiritual business, it's being evangelized. Your customers are selling it for you. Your suppliers are selling it for you. Your partners are selling it for you. Your, your employees are selling it for you. If, you're, if you have employees and they go home and, and they go to a party and somebody says, what do you do and who do you work for? And they're not actually excited to tell people about it. You're doing it wrong. You haven't created spiritual capital in your business, which is related to some other forms of capital as well. You know, is the business alive? Does it have a soul? Is there an intangible quality to your name, your business, and your brand? If you have that, you've got spiritual capital. And the question is how much and how do you encourage more? The next form is social capital. This is the concept of goodwill, right? So social capital is what does it matter that you have the name of your business anyway? When I started TSP, for instance, the Survival Podcast had very little social capital. And the name Jack Spierko had social capital in some business sectors, but not in podcasting and not in survivalism. It was, it was pretty much a zero balance of capital. Today, with 90,000 people listening to the show, with people that we've helped, people that we've, we've gotten behind, with all of the good things we've done, with over five and a half years of me constantly meeting my commitments to you, and when I screw up saying, I'm sorry I messed up, not I'm sorry you were offended, right? but I'm, I'm sorry I screwed up, I've built a lot of social capital. 
So when you look at a business, you need to look at what social capital does this business have, you know? And it's it's an interesting thing because the same business that seems to be creating negative social capital might be creating a lot of positive social capital. There's people I piss off. I have very little social capital with them. But it's because I'm true to what I do that I have social capital with the people I do have it with. So you might look at a lot of big companies and see, like, there's a lot of people that hate them. There's a lot of people who love them. And they're building that social capital because they do good things in the space of the people they want to do business with. Nothing wrong with that. The influence of a key employee or ownership in a social media presence is a form of social capital, right? So um, a business could have a figurehead or an actual owner, like let's say Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks. Mark has a massive amount of social capital, and by being associated with the Mavericks or associated with his other business ventures, he brings value to those business simply because he is the head of the ship, so to speak. So if somebody said to you, what do you think the chances are of this ship making it from France to Florida, especially before GPSs and everything, let's say in the 1600s, then you'd say, well, I don't know, 50-50. But if I said the person on that ship is Captain Joe Blow Jimmy John, and Joe Blow Jimmy John had actually built the trust of his men up and was known as someone who'd actually made the journey many times already, you'd say, well, the odds are very good that he's going to make it. Because he has imparted his social capital to that ship. So you would be far more likely to invest in the journey of that ship knowing that the captain was proven because he has social capital. So that's another form of capital we need to be building in a business. Um, the next one is material capital. Material capital we think of as stuff. The things that a business actually owns. The material assets of a business. But we also have to think about the non-physical products of a business. A system, a software, procedure, protocol. These are all material capital. If I have a system in my business that I use to, let's say, train my salespeople, and that system is unique to my company, and that training knowledge is in my company as intellectual capital, the knowledge of utilizing it exists as intellectual capital, but the system itself exists as material capital. I can take the system and take it elsewhere and let a management team develop the intellectual knowledge of how to use it, and then they would have it too. So it's transportable. So it's a form of material capital, even though it's not physical. And material capital is the one that we understand the least because of what I said earlier. Material capital in a business is subject to depreciation expenses, right? It, it, because it's usually not categorized as capital. It's usually categorized as an asset. So if I go out and buy a building, to me, it's very much a material capital thing when I'm thinking about the true value of the business, When I'm thinking like an account and a bean counter, well, I have a depreciation expense on that building. So every year that building becomes worth less and less and less and less so I can take a deduction off the income tax of the company and keep more of the company's profit to play the government's bullshit game. But if we took the government away and when we're making actual decisions about our business other than the bottom line numbers of what how much operating income we're going to have to work with, we should. We should just say... They, their definition of capital and my definition of capital are different. Just don't do it on the balance sheet or you're going to go to jail, 
right? Or get your company shut down or something like that, right? But when it comes down to actually that building, to me, that building is capital to me. And if I'm improving that building, its value's going up. And if I'm putting processes and systems around that building, its capital's going up. So that's what I call a capital litmus test again. Financial capital is the easy one. It's our money. It's, it, it's, it's silver, gold, and cash. Right? So financial capital, I'm not going to go into because I think people understand it very well. The next one is living capital. Living capital is when you create true security for the ownership and the employees. It would be something like making use of your real property beyond the building. So if we actually had a small facility on a fairly decent-sized piece of land, a couple acres, we could put in a garden that produced food for our employees. And it would also increase the value of the underlying value of the business. Um, but we're also at diversification of the holdings of the business. Is the business fully vested in just one thing, like a monocrop in agriculture? Or does it have a, a diverse holdings? And a diverse holdings is a type of living capital. It's, it's creating goodwill. It's creating a living business. A lot of these capitals overlap, and it's gray as to where one switches to the other. In fact, I'd say in some cases, one thing represents both forms of capital, two different forms of capital. So living capital, cultural capital in a business is what makes that business valuable to its employees, to its shareholders, to its customers, to its suppliers – that is greater than its assets, liabilities, and capital on a balance sheet. What makes me want to deal with this company because it's just, to my view, cool? What makes an employee choose a job with this company versus a competitor if both people basically offer the employee the same conventional opportunities? Salary and benefits are almost completely equivalent Guy lives 50 miles or, you know, like 20 miles away from both companies, same drive, same schedule. What makes a guy just say, you know what, this company is just a better company to work at, period. That's not definable with a metric. So a company that's doing a really good job of this now is Amazon. Amazon.com is doing a real good job of its cultural capital and making people want to work for Amazon. Not just because it pays well. Well, because they're, they're doing a good job of this cultural capital buildup. Um, the community and communities directly attached to a business are part of its cultural capital. Uh, a business with a really significant social media following, that's social capital, but the community itself that you, that's inside that social network is part of the company's culture. The, the person that's thinking about doing business with them will view the type of people associated with the business as a part of the business itself. Okay? Um, and the internal culture of the business, how well do people know each other? When I worked for Sage Telecom, on the wall throughout the entire place were these, like, shadow boxes, big boxes. And in there were things like people's high school football trophies, uh, military pictures, pictures of their kids, pictures of their parents, Awards they had won, special moments. And I saw that right away when I went there to consider working for this company. And right in the middle of walking through with one of the people I was going to be working with, I said, I, I've got to, because they were just like, this is where this is and this is where this is. And I'm like, I, I just have to stop you a second. I have to ask you, what are those? What, what is the significance? And he said, well, after you've been here a year, 
Um, if you want to, we give you one of these boxes. You bring in all the things you want put into it. And then we send it off to a place that will professionally arrange it for you, and they put it on the wall. And it stays here as a symbol that you're part of this company. And so that other people can understand who you are and who they're working with. And we make this investment in a person after a year of service. And then it stays here until that person chooses to leave. And when they leave, they take it with them. And I said, that is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And this individual told me, that the plan I walked in the door with, plus the fact that I was the only person that had ever walked in that business that actually saw that and pointed it out, was why I got the job. Where my point was, if you guys really wanted to leverage this cultural capital, you should have been pointing that out to everybody that walked in there. This is who we are. Because what it showed me is the, comp the company was employed by, it was employing people who were so comfortable with each other even on the edges of between, like, let's say, management and, 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 and general workforce and mid-management and upper management, they were willing to bear their souls to each other and show the most important things in their lives. That company had tremendous social capital. And a company called Silverpoint Capital bought them and immediately destroyed it. So cultural capital, while valuable, since it's dependent upon people trusting each other, is easily damaged. The next and last one before we go into the edge analysis is experiential capital or human capital. This is the experience of the owners. Again, it's the captain of the ship. If he has the experience, it's not just his social capital now. Now experience, right? So it's like he's well known as someone that can do this. That's social capital. He's got the proven track record to back up the reputation. That's experience. Because that's actually what, when the ship hits a storm, keeps the ship afloat, and gets it to its end. The social capital creates the belief so people will invest. The experience gets it done. Right? The experience of the employees, partners, contractors, the experience of the customer base. If you have really experienced customers in your sector, not just you know people that are just buying something because it's cool, but like people are buying a software product and they've used a lot of software products and they've chosen your product, but they're, they're going, well, if it did this, this, and this, it'd be really awesome. Now, if one person says that, you know, everybody always wants something. But if you have an experienced customer base and you're getting uniform feedback from all of them, that's part of your experiential capital, the experience of the industry itself. All of these things matter. So um, I actually spent more time on that, those eight forms than I had planned for today's show But the reality is I have about a 15-minute show on each one of them available at 5 Minutes with Jack. It's at jacksbricker.com. There's a link in today's show notes. So every single one, so it would be two hours and 30 minutes if you listen to the whole thing, just on these forms of capital. But I had to cover them today at this mile-high view so that you can understand that if you're not looking at the totality of a business's value, When you when you go into an edge analysis, as I call it, then you don't really understand why the edge is important. So let's start talking about. Let, let's start start with for people that are new to permaculture. What is an edge, and why does it matter? Edges in nature are where all productivity is at its greatest. Okay, if you want to find the most productive part of an ecosystem, find where the forest and the field meet in an edge. You can walk through the field pretty easily. You can walk through the forest usually pretty easily. 
when you get to the point where the field and the forest mesh, unless somebody's cut a trail for you in advance, you have to fight your way in that transition because it's where the greatest abundance is. If you watch a person in a boat that's fishing, if they know what the hell they're doing, you don't usually see them sitting out in the middle of a lake with the line over the side of the boat. They're cruising the shoreline or the weed line, edge. When they are in what looks like open water, they probably have a sonar going, and underneath the water there's maybe a hump. And that hump maybe attracts, through the flow of water, uh, there's a cloud of plankton. And the plankton are just drifting along, and then they hit that hump where the water, let's say, goes from 50 feet up to 18 feet and back down to 50 feet on the other side. And it creates this upcurrent, and they kind of hover there. So the, the, the hump in the lake creates an edge, and then the plankton create an edge. And now little tiny fish that feed on the plankton come in and start eating the plankton, and they create an edge. And they create a bait fish edge. And then the predator fish come in to consume the bait fish. And the fisherman gets in there and uses that edge to catch fish. And that's where all the abundance is. And 80% of the open water will have no fish in it. The edge attracts the abundance that's naturally occurring, or the edge generates the abundance. Got it? And it's constant. Because the other thing that we understand with permaculture is patterns. Once we see a pattern and we start looking for the pattern to repeat, we'll start to find it in many, many things. We can look at a Fibonacci sequence and see that's how it, a, a, a tree branches in mimicking of the Fibonacci sequence, or actually is the Fibonacci sequence. And so then we see that, or we see something like a spiral pattern, and we start to notice that certain things have spirals. And they all have certain commonalities that can be harnessed using that pattern. Or concentric circles like the rings of a tree. And then you start to look at a business and the business is organization and you can see spirals and you can see concentric circles in a business, not just a pyramid. Not just a management chain. But you see interconnectivities in those patterns. But what we're always looking for in every pattern is the pattern's edge. And the edge in business is best defined is where one activity bisects another activity, where two different things collide. Where are the touches in a business? If we know where the touches in a business are, we know how to analyze the business, and we know how to identify the problems. What consultants do primarily, now this is good consultants, what do shitty consultants, let's, let's start, what does a shitty consultant do? A shitty consultant shows up, asks all the employees and management in a business a bunch of bullshit questions, and then gives the management information they already knew and already had, and formulates it in a way that makes them feel like they got some for value and gives them a bill. And that is the majority of consulting in America today. Selling a business information it already had, repackaged and delivered back, that they're probably not going to act on. But what good consultants do is identify problems and identify the solutions to said problems. Okay, That's one thing they do. The other thing they do is identify opportunities that are not currently being utilized and then develop a solution to turn those opportunities into something that can be utilized. So 
you're not doing this. If you did this, this would be the result. Right? You are doing this. It's creating this problem. You're doing it because you think you have to because of A, B, and C. If we rearrange these things, now we can pull that out of the way and we can make that problem go away without creating another problem. Because a lot of times when you tell a business, well, you're doing this and it creates a problem. And they go, well, if we didn't do that, we'd have a bigger problem and here's what it is. If you're doing an analysis of the business functionality end-to-end, you already know what they're going to say, and you've already thought about it, and you already have an answer, and now you're bringing value. Because they might have already had this conversation 15 times, which is why companies get pissed off at consultants, because they say, well, do this, and you say you can't, and they tell them why, and they go, oh, we didn't know that. Well, you're supposed to know that as a consultant. But the way we find these things is analyzing all the touches, all, all the places where one flow of energy interacts with another flow of energy. Internally, we have what we call a departmental edge. Okay? And the departmental edges are many in a business of any significant size. So you might have marketing interacting with sales. That's a departmental edge. Okay? You also might have marketing interacting with product development. That's an edge. Okay? You might have marketing interacting with customer service. It's an edge. So you just have, the way you got to think about it then is just distinctive departments in a company. Product development, software services, sales, marketing. Sales and marketing are not the same. We'll talk about that when we talk about their individual edges in a second. But, but those types of things, finance, interacting with sales, that's an edge. The financial people need to do a forecast for next year. So they go to the salespeople and say, how much do you think you're going to sell? Because they're going to take other financial components and add it to that to forecast the health of the company next year. But that's an edge. Now, the interesting thing about those edges are they are the places where the greatest conflicts arise in a company because one department doesn't understand the needs and goals and desires of the other department. The sales guy does a forecast. The sales guy brings his forecast to his manager. His manager is the, the generally the bridge of the edges. The manager then takes the forecast and flips it over to finance. Finance takes the forecast and says, the forecast doesn't work. You need to sell more. Well, the forecast wasn't, you know, this is how much we think we should sell. This is how much we think we are going to sell based on all the information that a sales team has in the field. But then the finance guy says it doesn't, the numbers don't work this way for what we're trying to do. So he kicks it back to the manager who, who then just jacks up the sales forecast and tells the salesman, right, or sales manager, this is your new forecast. And the sales manager says, well, why the hell did I do this in the first place? And no one understands on either side of that edge what the hell's going on. And the manager looks like a dick. So the sales manager is viewed by as an asshole by his entire sales force because he just made him spend 30 days developing a sales forecast only to change it. The manager's like, I don't have any choice. They don't believe him. And then you got a guy over here in finance, and all he's saying is, I've been given a directive by upper management, another departmental ledge we'll get to in a second, that we need a projection that shows at least this next year. And I got to get it out of there, and I need more sales to do it. So since he's disconnected from sales, he doesn't understand. You don't just turn the dial up and get more, right? It's not possible. 
But the business has done this for so many years, and when you put stress on a person and they, they fear that they're going to lose their job, they will work a little harder and they will sell a little more. So it seems to work. So now the financial people have become convinced that applying pressure through the management edge into the sales edge works. The upper-level people who are doing this in multiple edges become convinced that it works, so they just push more. And if they want more, they just turn the faucet up. Well, eventually this, this, this system fails and runs out because it's not sustainable. Now, the salesperson also knows how this game works. So he's already fudged his forecast low. He's already gone lower than he thinks he really can do. This is like Star Trek, right? When, when Kirk says to Scotty, how long before we get the engines back? And he says, two hours, Captain. And, and, and Kirk says, well, you've got 50 minutes. And he says, I'll do what I can. Right? Well, he already knew it was going to take more than, than the captain wanted, so he said more than it would even take. Right? This is, now, now this is being, now we have a dysfunctional system because we now have our cultural capital being damaged by dishonesty and a lack of mutual respect because everybody wants what they want in clearly defined departments with no cross training and cross understanding. Where if the salesperson's forecast was simply respected in the first place, as long as it was reasonable, which should be his manager's job to analyze, then it would be respected and appreciated and put into the numbers, and we would make other numbers like how much we spend, which we actually control. We actually control how much money we spend. We don't control how much money we take in. We'd have a better running system just by starting at just the departmental edge, And we're really looking at interdepartments there. We haven't even really started to look at the, the departmental edge in management department. Because we basically have in a company general workers, low managers, middle managers, upper managers, and owners, directors, VPs. All at that top layer. And those interactions are all edges. And generally, if you want more productivity... As long as the edges are well designed, increase your edge. Where what we've done in corporate America is we've decreased our edge. So the VP layer only interacts with upper management. So it's a short edge. And upper management only interacts with, with middle management. So it's a short edge. And then middle only operates with lower management and general workers. So it's a short edge. If the VP layer actually interacted at times through the whole company, they wouldn't be viewed as pompous, arrogant, and full of shit by the general workforce, which is how they're viewed. Whether you think you are or not, most companies today, the people that make multi-six-figure incomes are viewed as rich assholes who don't really know what they're doing by the people lower down in the organization. Part of it is the dishonesty edge, that we just talked about it, but a lot of it is just a failure to actually have an edge. It's not there. If you work for a company with more than a thousand people in it, when was the last time a vice president of the company had a conversation with you if you are not at least upper management? If you are below, if you are down at lower management or general worker, how many times have you had a discussion about your company with your vice president? And don't say it can't be done because there's companies that were run by people who did it. Jack Welsh walked his floor 
and talk to everybody all the way down to the guy that pushed the broom. He also said you should fire the lowest performing 10% of your company every year. Until you got to a point where you went, I can't justify firing anybody anymore, and then look hard and make sure, and then still do it again next year. Not so people would be in fear, but so that you could reward better performance. Jack Welch had an edge, and I don't mean that edgy thing. I mean a long permaculture edge in his business. He reached out and touched everybody in that business with a, a testillating pattern. Because he interacted with the guy pushing the broom certainly differently than the VP, but he did interact. So that's another part of the departmental edge. If you can get people at multiple layers actually engaged with each other, talking about each other, caring with each other, and trusting each other, then a business starts to develop all of these forms of capital we let off with. Then there's the marketing edge. The marketing edge is every single place that your company's message touches potential customers, potential partners, and potential employees. Marketing should be as concerned about attracting the best talent as recruiting should. They shouldn't be totally disenfranchised with each other. If marketing's really good, and I'm a salesperson, then I know there's lots of leads, there's lots of engagements. See, I know that I'm going to have a market to work with So I can convert it to sales. We'll get the sales edge next. But I'm going to want to work for you. If I'm in product development and I love what I do and I'm like, I want to build the best widget ever. Do I want to build it for a company that's going to stick it up on a shelf as one of a million products and say, well, we have this too. Or do I really want to work for a company that's going to take that and take every single thing that I know is brilliant about it And hold it up to the world and say, look at what we have done. That's the marketing edge. Marketing is not sales. Marketing is the generation of interest in your company. As soon as you go from a point of the interest is now peaked, and now we're going to start a process of conversion, conversion to becoming a customer, conversion to becoming an employee, conversion to becoming a partner, conversion to becoming a reseller, at that point we go into a sales-slash-recruiting process. And sales and recruiting are kind of the same thing. You're just selling opportunity versus a thing. right? So that's where, that's where that edge intersects and departs, and that's where it changes. But the marketing edge, instead of looking at, well, is our logo cool? Is our strap line neat? We need to be asking ourselves, Where do, do customers actually hear about us? And when they do, what do they think? How do they feel? No, the internet can tell us. We can actually put up a survey online that will actually get real answers. We don't even have to say it's ours. We can just say, hey, we found this thing, and this is what we think about it. What do you think about it? And basically put yes or no on it and throw $1,000 of traffic at it and get more honest answers than any focus group could ever give us. That's marketing. Focus groups will lie to you. If you put 10 people in a room and show them a product that sucks, they'll say it sucks, but they'll mitigate their suck claim. If you put it up online and they don't know they're going to hurt your feelings, they're like, this is the suckiest thing to ever suck a suck. Never, ever make this. I will never buy this. And you'll know, don't do that. But if they love it, they'll be like, where can I get this now? I want this now. Why isn't it already here? 
You can trust that feedback. That's part of your marketing edge. But your marketing edge also needs to be internal and interdepartmental. Your general employee should be going home and saying, holy crap, you can't believe what we're doing right now. Now, I know there's sometimes you're developing a product that can't yet be released to the general public about its knowledge for reasons such as our competition will steal it, which I am a big, big, big proponent of the open source model. But I get in some places why that's still the case. But by the time it's going to market, everybody in your company should be excited about it or it's a failure. If the people that work for you don't give a shit, why should I? If you're a car manufacturer, if you're Ford, and you're releasing a brand new car, and the guy that sells it on the showroom doesn't want to drive it, why should I want to drive it? Now, I understand you can get nitpicking with technicalities here. If the guy that, that sells your cars for you has a farmstead like I do, and he really needs a truck, and the car is a sports car, and it's not practical for his lifestyle, he may not want that particular model, but he must he must feel like, if you want a sports car, this is what you want and here's why. Not because he's paid to say it, because he really believes it. That's the internal marketing edge of a company. Let's hold with marketing right now for the edge of marketing and, and discuss how it actually builds some other capital. So one of the things I said you want in your business is intellectual capital. Knowledge of the business, its operations, etc. I would go into companies and I would sit down and talk to people and say they wanted to market a product or a service. And I'd say, well, what does it do? And I'd find that a lot of times the people that actually were building it and selling it couldn't really define it quickly and articulately and succinctly. Two sentences, like I ask you guys to do when you ask me a question. If you can't do that, you haven't thought out why you're doing what you're doing enough. And you can tell me, well, there's a thousand things Yeah, but what does it do? What do those things lead to? What are, what is the, what is the punchline? What is the point? And if you could do that, great. We're on, we're on the right track. We might need to tune it a little bit for the audience, but at least you know what it is. But if you're doing what I'm talking about, if you have an mar internal marketing, a long internal testillating marketing edge inside your company where marketing is touching everybody in your company, down to the guy with the broom, assuming the person's been there for more than two to three months, If I walk in to your reception area, and there's a lady sitting behind the desk, and she goes, Hi, how are you? What is your name? I'm, I'm Jack Spierko. And she goes, Oh, yes, Mr. Wilson is ready to see you in about five minutes. I should be able to sit down and say, What's your name? And she says, No, Donna. I know, I'm making up a name. And I, say, and if I say, Donna, what do you guys do here? Donna should be able to tell me. And not in completely generic terms either. And if I say, Well, I'm here to talk to... to uh, to Mr. Reynolds or whoever's name I made up there, uh, about Project X. What do you know about Project X? If Donna goes, I don't really know, I've got a problem. I've got a problem. Uh, it doesn't mean the company won't be successful, but it's not optimized. And that marketing, internal marketing edge, is not optimized. Donna should know what Project X is and why anyone should care, unless it's top secret. right? As long as it is going out to the general public at this point, It's a developed, fully realized baby that's about to be birthed into the market or it's already being sold. If Donna doesn't know what it is, I've got a problem. Now, if Donna works for JCPenney's and it's one product on page 39 of a catalog, that's different. That's totally different. Maybe. Maybe. If it's that big a deal that I've come in to consult on it, 
It may not be any different at all. Maybe that's something everybody in the company should know about, at least at that office where they're doing that project. That's the internal marketing edge. And when you have marketing's about education, so if you want intellectual capital, you need informed people who are educated about things, so you need a long internal marketing edge. Most companies only focus on external marketing. They focus very little on internal marketing. And because they have a shitty departmental edge, when they try to do internal marketing, everybody in the company just goes, that's those assholes in marketing that don't know what they're doing. See? Sales edge. The sales edge is everywhere that some part of your company, be it human or, or, or mechanical or technology, takes the interested and converts them to the engaged. You should write that down. If, you, if you're really into this, sales is everywhere that any component of your company, be it mechanical, technological, or human, transforms the interested into the engaged. That is one of the most powerful things in the world. It's why the sales force is the infantry of a, of a business. Without the sales force, you're done, even if the sales force is a website. The marketing has piqued the interest, and now the customer is saying, tell me more, I want to do business with you, how do I buy, how do I become your supplier, how do I apply for a job, how do I get your product, where can I find your product if you don't sell it directly, and the sales tools must kick in. And the salesman has to take that interest, match make, and make sure the match is right if you're doing it ethically. I'm not going to sell you a course on how to become an NBA basketball player if you are four foot three inches tall and have no arms. Unless you just want to know. Unless you're very clear about what you're doing, I'm not going to sell you that product. Not right for you. Being a little ridiculous to make a point, though. You can be in sales. You can be very, very good at what you do. You can be a master of that sales edge externally. And you can be 100% ethical. You can care for people. You can never write a contract with a customer that should not be doing business with you. And you should not. It may hurt your quota this month. It will not hurt your quota over a multi-year period. It will grow it. You don't take business as bad business. It's not good for you. It's not good for your company. And the reason people do it is because of the dishonest managerial departmental edge that we talked about at the beginning. So we have to eliminate that so that it doesn't happen. We have to be willing to turn business down if we know we're good at what we do. But the sales edge also is the place where companies are 100% external. The salespeople are out in the field, far away from you know the cooks and the supply sergeants and everybody that's in the rear, and they just support them and then make sure you kill enough of the enemy and, and we'll all be good. Totally wrong. The most informed knowledge that you have in a business about your product and your business and what you're doing for the market, in, that can explain it in layman's terms, that can make people give a shit, is the sales force. Because the guy that buys the next great cell phone, with very few exceptions, doesn't care specifically about exactly how the processor is wired in and what processor it is and who made it and whatever. He just wants to know that the phone works really good. 
but he wants to know a little bit about the technology so he believes that it works really good. The guy that knows that's a salesman. The sales edge and the marketing edges should be lined up with each other and moving throughout your whole company. The marketing team should be educating your internal company as to what you're doing and why it's awesome. And your sales team should be educating the internal parts of your company as to why it matters to them. Why they should be excited. This is a company that could exist, but right now probably doesn't. A company that functions this way. Instead of everybody compartmentalized off into the little world, having all of these edges interlocking with each other, and an understanding that this is something special. What is the cultural capital in a company like I'm describing right now? If that company existed, and if you're the kind of person that wants to be an employee, right now, at this point, I'm only halfway through the edge analysis, do you want to work there? If you want to own and run and manage a company, do you want to own and run and manage a company like this? Then why is nobody doing it? It's not because it doesn't work. I've seen every single thing I'm describing work in pieces and parts. I've just never seen it holistically assembled. The next is product creation edge. So this is your engineers, your developers, your manufacturers, your idea guys. It's not always a physical product or even an intellectual product like a software service either. If you had an advertising agency, even though it's marketing in the end, when a client came to you and said, here's our new product, it's an awesome cell phone, it does all of these things, build us a marketing campaign for it. We want to do national television advertising for this product. Then the team that develops that campaign is product creation. Even though it doesn't seem like a product. It seems like the product is the phone. But the phone is, is being sold to the end customer. And the phone is being sold by AT&T. You're Madison Avenue Marketing. You're selling to AT&T. This is the campaign for you. You're developing the product for them, not for me, the guy that buys the phone. You better be thinking about me. Do you see the subtle difference there? That's product creation. Inside AT&T, well, AT&T doesn't develop their own phone. Let's say it's an iPhone. Inside Apple, the people that actually does not build the phone, that actually create the design of the phone, and then build the phone. That's all product creation. So their customers, AT&T, we want you to really push our phone. Their customers also me at the end of the chain buying the phone because eventually I'm the end consumer. Those are all edges. Apple actually does a really good job of intersecting with my edge even though there's a carrier in between. There's something wrong with my service, I go to AT&T. There's something wrong with my phone, Apple's not like, well, it's AT&T's problem. They will help me. They might charge me, but they will help me. That's an understanding of edge. But the product creation edge internally is what I'm really talking about here. I just want you to understand the totality first. Internally, while that product's being developed, unless it's super secret squirrel stuff, 
All those other edges, the sales edge, the marketing edge, the departmental edge, should be engaged. They should be getting feedback. It, it, I'll tell you what's maddening for a salesperson. We've got a new product. Really, when's it coming out? Next week. Okay, what's it do? It does this, this, and this. Really? Does it do this? No. Does it do that? No. Okay, none of my customers want this. Well, how do you know? Because I have a freaking sales edge in the external part of the company where I talk to them and nobody's asking for this. Well, we want you to make them want this. Well, they don't need this. They don't need this. Well, you can make them want it. Yeah, but they don't need this. I'm an ethical salesperson. I sell my clients what they need. If it's a vacation, I could sell to the want. But when it's like a product for use in their business, if it's not going to actually make their business better, I don't want to sell it to them. What if the salesperson was actually consulted by the marketing department? And I'm telling you, in most companies of any significant size today, it does not happen. Marketing does its own independent research. They usually pay some third-party research firm to do part of it for them. They talk to people without telling the salespeople they're talking to their own customers. They don't have the rapport. They know they have an agenda. They know what they want to do, so they convince the customer to say, "Yeah, I like that." They get an impartial. They get a, they get a a uh, not impartial. They get a partial, uh, a, a, an infected response, a biased response from the market that meets their agenda. They develop the product, and then they hand it off to marketing and sales. If you're talking to the salespeople, the salespeople can say, listen, here's what I'll do. I'll contact our 20 biggest customers today. I'll talk to them about what their biggest needs are, and I'll find out what they'd like us to develop for them next. Then I'll tell you what that is. And then you take that information and you also touch our customer to refine it because you're better at that. I mean, you have more time to do that than me because that's your job. And then I'll look at what you came up with. We'll close the loop together. We'll make sure the customer really wants this and they're going to commit to buying it. And then we'll build it for them. And that can be done in two weeks. Not the de delivery, but the plan. That's what we're building. And, and, and no one does it. Because the product creation edge... It's, it's viewed as not touching the rest of the company. You just make it, put it in a box, and ship it out the door. And in a mature company, you get away with that, but if you want to develop something new, you don't. In my business, product creation is what I'm doing right now, talking to this my I'm creating today's product. Now, how did I get that? I'm a one-man operation. Here's the truth. No such, there's no such thing as a one-man company. In my instance, I have an intern that helps a little bit here and there, and I have a, a wife. But in the beginning, it was just me. It still wasn't because you are part of the company. I reach out. So last week, I do a show. I get off during product creation into the concept of permaculture in business. I seek your, re your response. Do you want to know more about this? If I had gotten like three responses, I might not have done it. If I got like ten and they were all like, we've heard enough of this crap for now. Give us something different. I would have done that. So that this is you're actually watching the, the the product creation of today's show overlap multiple departments inside basically a one man company. I'm the sales department, I'm the marketing department, I'm the product creation department, and that's why one man companies, when they're effectively run, are more nimble and agile than multi person companies. But that shouldn't be the case. 
If you have a team of 20 people doing what I do, they should bash my brains in. But if their edges aren't optimized, they're slow. They're impeded by personal agendas. Their edges are corrupted by dishonesty and mistrust and a lack of understanding. Since I'm all departments, every department knows what the other department knows. That's why I can create a product like this today. I asked you about it last week. I sat down today and I created this today. Right now. I did not work on it over the weekend. I created it because all of my departments know the same thing because they're all one. But they're all interacting with you guys. My sponsors are part of TSP. My vendors are part of TSP, my supporting vendors. My listeners are part of TSP, my forum members, the people on Zello, the people that come to my events, the expert council. We've actually built a massive organization, but all the departments have edges that touch each other because I have one person myself acting as a conduit. The strong leader in a company is that conduit, and they're not always in charge. I've been the guy in a company that everybody trusts, that everybody talks to it, that solutions get fed through. You could be that person too, even if you're not an entrepreneur or not ready to be one yet. You don't need a title. It's stepping up. It's interacting. It's opening your ears, opening your mind. And when you present an idea and somebody craps on it, not getting offended. I gave companies both as clients and as an employee Many wonderful ideas that were ignored. I didn't worry about it. I did my job, but I was always the person that people trusted. And when it really came down to like, we got to make a really tough decision, I would always be consulted on it, even when I, my position didn't dictate it. And I guess it's because I intuitively always thought this way. But now with permaculture, I understand exactly how this works. Then there's the customer service edge. The customer service edge... It's exactly what it sounds like. It's everywhere that a customer is touched after engagement, right? If you're touching the customer when they're about to buy but haven't bought yet, it's not customer service. You'll call it customer service in a lot of businesses because people like service better than the word sales. Sales has a, I don't want to be sold to, mean salesperson, making me do stuff I don't want to do, right? People have that because... You know, salespeople close business they shouldn't because of the dishonesty, corruption between the departmental edges, right? But in reality, it's a sales process right up until cha-ching. Now you've bought. Now your sales might be involved in customer service. They should be. If you haven't figured it out now, every department should be touching every other department internally and externally. But customer service is, after I bought from you and I need help, Do you help me? It's the most important component in a company. It's the one that's getting the least attention in the modern era. Because it's the one that makes me sell for you as a customer. Now, if you build such a great product that's so intuitive that when I get my hands on it, I never need you, it's still customer service. You build customer service into the product. If you can do that, wow. But most of the time, I'm going to at some point need some level of help. I want to buy another one and you don't make it anymore. Where can I get one used on the market? Well, let me tell you about our new one. I really need this one to match the old one. 
Oh, I do need to upgrade. That's back into a sales process, but getting you to the right person is a customer service function. It's broken. It's not working. How do I get it fixed? My cable internet service is down, and I cannot do my job now because I can't reach the internet. Fix it for me. And companies are starting to care about customer service again. But, back to our capital. What have you really built cultural and intellectual capital within your company? So much so that every member of your company had a basic fundamental understanding of what you did, and almost anybody could help out in a customer service situation, anybody that worked for you. I can't figure out how this works. Oh, let me show you that. Oh, thanks. I didn't know that you were in customer service. I'm, I'm not. I'm the receptionist. <laughs> now, do you think I want to do business with your company now when that happens? Seriously. I know that everything's jammed up in the customer service in the back. I got a guy on the phone that called the front desk and said a customer service. I say, how about I direct your call? I need customer service. What are you trying to get done? Oh, this thing doesn't work on my phone. Oh, hold on. Go to this screen, do that, do this, do that. Does it work now? Yeah, okay. Then you don't have to worry about it. How many people are going to be like, this comedy's awesome. It, whenever you call them and ask them for help, they help you. And what if I have a shitty experience? What do you think I'm going to say then when somebody says, well, that's really cool. I'm going to say, yeah, but the company doesn't give a shit about its customers. I'd find something else. That customer service edge has to be interacting on all layers. And then there's the edge that pulls all of this together internally, the training edge. When I look back at being in Fluke Networks and selling test equipment, if I was put back into there, other than getting rid of most of the management, um, and said, optimize this company back when I was in sales for it, one of the first things I would have done is taken the, the, all the, the basic test equipment that we sold every day, and I would have went through, and every single person in that company had a computer. And I would have said, I want you to see right here what we sell, what it does, and how it works. Let me show you on your own connection. This is how you connect to our network. This is what this is what you can see through our equipment that you can't see with your computer. This is what it does. And when you can't connect and one of our techs comes in and fix your connection for you, this is what he's doing. You don't have to know how to do all this, but this is what it does. This is how we test a cable to see if it's not a network problem, but a cable problem. This is the difference between a network problem and a cable problem. I'm talking 20 minutes of training per employee. This is what we do. Oh, you're confused as to how we're fluke networks and there's also a fluke. Those guys are over there. They do electrical test equipment. They test, see that plug over there that you plug the computer in to get power? They deal mostly with that. I'll have them come over and explain that too because we are sister companies and we do interact with each other, so you should know that too. That would be one of the first things I would do. The receptionist would know what the company does. I worked for a company for a very short period of time that got out, bought out by Fluke and just basically slaughtered in the merger. They were called Microtest. And I went to work for them due to cultural capital. I never really wanted to work for Fluke. They didn't have the cultural capital. And I remember... I was talking to a guy named Jim that was their executive vice president or something like that. And we were talking about stories. This was before I decided to take the job, before they decided to offer me the job. And I remember one of the things that made me definitely say, I want to do this. He was telling me about how 
in their last Christmas uh, thing the year before that he was talking to them about sales. And he said, who here is in sales? And, you know, the, the company operated through regional managers and sales reps. And the reps were independent business people. They had worked for firms outside of the company, were contractors, basically. So there were only four people in sales directly. Plus there was a guy in catalog sales that managed the big catalogs. And then there was a sales manager that she was over those five. So there were six. So six hands went up. And he said, okay, you six people, put your hands down and step back out of the way. Everybody else in this room should be ashamed of yourselves right now. When I asked that question, I expected every hand to go up. Every single person in this company should be in sales. And we're going to fix that this year. That was it. I was hooked. Then I met like my inside salesperson, you know, that was going to handle inside sales for me. And basically, she was a person that was so motivated. If she was any more motivated, she'd be knocking people over. I wanted to work for that company. Because they created a training edge. Their executive VP identified a problem at a company Christmas party and used it to retrain the entire workforce along a training edge. Instead of putting the training edges at the department level, we train our salespeople to sell. We tell, we train our, 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 our product creation people to make products. We train our marketing people to market and we train our customer service people to be customer service people. We train the entire company about what the company does. So there, see, that's what I'm saying. I'm not making this stuff up. I've never seen it holistically fully integrated, but I've seen pieces of this all the way along. And that's what I love about permaculture is an analysis and a design tool. All of these are pieces and parts. They're a hugel culture pad, a big mound with wood in it that helps hold moisture in. They're a contour swale, a, a feature in the landscape that infiltrates water. They're a big tree providing shade for a, a shade-loving species. They're a support species that's pioneering that comes up and we chop it and drop it to the ground and we use it to build soil so that the long-term productive species, those are all pieces of permaculture. They're all pretty useless by themselves or they can work a little bit, but they're never as powerful as when we build a full holistically integrated system on them. What I would do if I were back in business consulting today is I would approach every business with this analysis. How do your departments interact with each other? What are the edges there? And where are the corruptions in the edges? Where are the damages to the edges? Where are the edges too short? Some instances, we might even have an edge that's a little too long. But most of the time, we need to extend the edge. Where are your marketing edges internally and externally? How do we extend those edges? How do we make them longer and more productive? The longer the edge, the more productive the edge. Where are your sales edges internally and externally? Where are your project creation edges? How are you actually developing products? Where do the ideas come from? What do people inside your company know about your products as they're being developed? Whose feedback is, is sought as these products are developed? Who's listened to? Who's not listened to? Where are your edges there? Where are your customer service edges? How does a customer feel after they've bought from you and they need something? 
What edges are they creating? Understand, all of these edges actually create multiple edges. Because you have a customer who's dealt with you almost at every edge we're talking about. He's experienced your training edge because he's had to deal with people in your company that knew what the hell they were doing or didn't. He's probably experienced your customer service edge because he's had a question and needed it answered. He's dealt with your product creation edge because he's got your product now. He's dealt with your sales edge because at some point he made the decision to acquire it. He's dealt with your marketing edge because somehow he found out about you in the first place. And he's he's dealt with your departmental edge because it interacts with every single edge I just mentioned. And now he's out there with your product creating his own edge. Everywhere he goes and talks about it, he's creating an edge. And the bigger that edge is, the more it leads back to you. And it can lead back to you as a big steaming pile of shit or a really beautiful relationship. And now with the internet, as though it's new, that's what people say, and now with the internet, no, and now with the internet, in its fully realized potential that it is in 2014, he's talking about you on Twitter. He's talking about you on Pinterest. He's talking about you on Facebook. He's emailing his friends. He has a much bigger edge than he used to. The customer's edge has extended. Because the customer used to just be able to interact with the people that he talked to on a regular phone, not a cell phone, and who he saw day to day and walked around and talked to at the coffee shop or the, you know, the, the, the butcher shop or wherever he might interact with somebody. He, he, he did not have the huge edge that he has today. He had a pretty short edge. So he could only be so productive or so damaging. I mean, if the edge is full of pecans and passion fruit, the edge is productive for good. What if the edge is full of poison ivy? If you're not seeing to your customer's happiness and care, you're creating a poison ivy edge. It's not good for your company. So if we're doing the right things for our customers, if they feel cared for and they feel like we actually are honest with each other and them, and you listen to me, The most important thing I'm going to say today, there's no way you're being honest with your market if you're not honest with your company internally. If your financial people are not being honest with your salespeople, if your salespeople are not being honest with your financial people, if your marketing people are not being honest with your product creation people, if there's not internal honesty and internal respect and internal appreciation, there will not be external honesty, external respect, and external appreciation to your customers. And then they will not reflect that, and karma is real, and karma, when done improperly, is a bitch. You are either sending out a very positive force into a very large series of edges, or you're sending out a very negative force. And either way, you're going to receive what you've sent out. Good guys do win in business. There's the belief that you got to be Like, you know, and it makes me think of there's an old movie, a spoof movie. And it actually gets to the point of why people think that that the good guy can't win. Because, you know what you usually say about the guy that's not quite very bright? Well, he's a nice guy, he's just not very smart. And it's from the, the, the spoof movie Spaceballs, where the Rick Moranis character that plays Dark Helmet, like the parody of uh, Darth Vader, says, 
evil will always win because good is dumb. And that's not true, but it's funny. And the truth is a lot of times when people get, you know, they say, well, that guy was a nice guy and that's why he lost in business. No, he wasn't very smart about the way he, he operated in business. You can be tough and you can be nice. You can be a very nice guy, but you also have to be tough. And you have to also have to look at it this way. The nice guy that they talk about that way is the guy that, like, you needed to fire three people and you wouldn't do it because you were too nice. And then you ended up six months later firing everybody. Where if you had fired the three people, you could have continued to employ the other 20-odd people, built the company back up, and maybe eventually even hired those three people back. If they were worthy of being hired back in the first place, there was a reason you selected those three to let go. It's not because you're not nice. It's because you're not being smart. But this is the way I would handle business today. An edge analysis. And there's more edges than this. This is, again, I created this product for you this morning when I got out of bed. I said, I'm going to do this. I walked my geese and I created this for you. If I were to sit down and spend a week on this, I would probably come up with about 15 to 20 edges in a business. And I'd probably do a diagram of how all the edges intersect with each other. And then I would consolidate that and refine it further. I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. I'm not in that business anymore. I like to float things and let other people take them. But this is actually the way that any business can optimize itself. And the truth is, while a consultant might come in and do this, a company with enough integrity and internal honesty to sit down and go through this process on their own, develop the internal training edge, develop the internal marketing edge, develop the internal sales edge, to start focusing on more than just the intellectual and financial and material capital, to also focus on the human capital, the cultural capital, the living capital, the social capital, and the spiritual capital of a company. Can dramatically improve what they do. I don't care what business they're in. Within reason. If you sell black and white TVs today, you've got a problem. But other than that, This, to me, is the way to manage a business. This, to me, is the way to be a better employee in a business. And honestly, we can manage any organization with this. We could manage a church with this. We could manage a, a, a town with this. Towns have marketing departments. Towns have sales departments. Towns have intellectual and cultural and material and social capital. But it's up to us whether we want to do it or not. And if you take what I've given you today, even if you're not a business-minded person, you, since patterns repeat, I bet you can figure out how you can manage your farmstead or your homestead or your backyard urban permaculture garden with these same techniques. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.